Welcome to another episode of DSR Become a Better Man. If you are new to this and uh, you can see all of the interviews racked up there in the podcast and you're kind of overwhelmed, then a good way to get started is to go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13. That's 13 as a number, get top 13. Because there we have the top 13 pieces of advice and courses that we've discovered over 15 years of doing this. It's actually 16 years now. And that's definitely a great place to start to get an overview of what the best pieces of advice that have been discovered over all of this time to get guys on top of this whole subject of dating, sex, and relationships. So highly recommend you start there. Today's topic. Today's topic is uh, really an important topic, and it's not a fun topic. Today, we're breaking down the current reality of STD risks, how you can contract STDs, what they are, and how to avoid them, and so on and so forth. This is knowledge that absolutely everyone should have from their teen onwards. Unfortunately, like when I was a teenager, they didn't have any of this stuff available anywhere, not even on the internet, which, as we'll see, contains a lot of myths and misinformation out there. So it's not necessarily helping you guys out there, you younger guys, or anyone who's Googling for that matter right now as much as it could. Now, after listening to this episode, you'll understand STDs better than 99% of everyone out there, which is important because most of what people say on this topic, in my experience, is BS. So in this episode, we cover everything from what the 30 plus STDs are, how to reduce your risk of getting them, how to get tested, and the pitfalls of testing and how to manage and deal with an STD if you get one so that it doesn't negatively impact your life, your dating, your relationships, and so on. Now, today's guest is Janelle Marie Pierce. She's the founder and executive director of the STD Project. She's an adjunct professor and very active in this space, helping to get clear and accurate information out there. She tri-chairs the Communications Action Group for the National Coalition for Sexual Health, is a member of the International Union Against Sexually Transmitted Diseases, the American Sexually Transmitted Diseases Association, the National Coalition of STD Directors, and the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable. The takeaway from all of that is that she's really super active in this STD space, and as you'll hear in the interview, has a wealth of information to share on it. As usual, to get the show notes from the episode, the transcript of the interview, the links to everything we mention and more information on today's guest and what they're up to, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and pick out the episode from there. You'll find all the notes on that page. If you want all of that in your email inbox, whenever these episodes come out, just go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there and you'll get that in your inbox every time we put an episode out. Now, please enjoy this interview with Janelle Marie Pierce. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. Janelle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. 
Yeah, so uh, I wanted to quickly dive into your background. So you've headed up this project, the STD project. Uh, how did you get started with that? Why did you choose to get into that? And how long have you been doing it for? That's a good question. Well, my traditional education is not in sexual health and public health. I have a BBA and an MBA in honors professional accountancy. So I was a successful accountant. I was an auditor before deciding to become a sexual health STD specific advocate. Um, and I, it's really, I started the STD project based on personal experience and I was, um, I'm also a, a college professor. I teach at a community college locally. So education has always been big in my peripheral. But at the time, um, like I said, I was in the corporate world and I just felt like there was something else that I needed to be doing that I wanted to. Ultimately, I wanted to help people. I was at a place in my professional and personal life that I felt really secure in who I was, who I'd become, and all the work that I had put into the person that I saw myself becoming. And I realized that reconciling how I believed I have an STI. So um, when I was 16 years old, I was diagnosed with genital herpes, and it was a traumatic experience for me. And I always had a really hard time reconciling how I felt about myself as opposed to what the stigma associated with all STIs told me I should feel about myself, that I was now dirty and damaged goods and this bad person that nobody would ever want. And I had no more value and nobody would want to date me. Like all this plethora of negative connotations associated with people who have and contract STIs. And that was opposed to how I really felt about myself, what kind of person I thought myself to be and what I thought I brought to the table in a relationship and all of that. And so at this point, I was 29 years old when I launched the STD project. And that's been um, almost five years. In April, it'll be five years, our five-year anniversary. And at the time, I thought, you know, I want to help people to not have to. It took me years and years to overcome that stigma and to tell myself that what I was hearing externally on late night comedy and in television and, and even from my peers and all of the jokes that are told that that did not gel with what the reality was for me. The actual experience was of living with an STI and what that meant for my dating life and all of that, that, that those two things weren't actually, they didn't pair up. So I wanted to help other people walk through that process and overcome that stigma a lot faster than it took me um, and a lot less painstakingly, hopefully. So the idea behind the STD project was to provide a platform that was both resources, like what you find online a lot of times is all of that clinical factual information, which is really helpful and necessary. But then I wanted to delve into that gray area that you don't see a lot of, of like, what do you think about yourself now going forward? And how do you reconcile the two things, that stigma and all those negative connotations with who you really are? How are you going to date going forward? Does that mean you can still have a healthy sex life? And can you still have a fun, wonderful thorough and awesome, healthy sex life. And, or, you know, are you know, are you now going to have to be celibate for the rest of your life, which of course is not true. So I wanted to help people kind of navigate that, that you don't see as often. So we, we provide both on the STD project. We don't, we're kind of like a catch-all where we have that clinical factual information, but then we also talk about the personal experiences. People come in to the website and share their interviews anonymously, their personal experiences anonymously, because everyone's perspective is unique. So we we welcome everybody's point of view and everybody's, um, you know, anyone from any walk of life kind of deal. And then we encourage people to do their own research, to not stop at the STD project, but we link to a lot of amazing resources. I sit on the board of the National Coalition for Sexual Health, and we work with a lot of those folks too, and a lot of those organizations. And 
And we really encourage people to empower themselves via education and awareness to, if we don't love what we're saying, then find another resource that helps support your narrative and and is accurate, of course, as long as your narrative is accurate. But we really want to just empower people to walk forward and to move past that initial shock and stigma and to have the information and tools so that they can move past their diagnosis. Great. That's quite a while, 16 years old to 29. And I'm, I'm guessing that that wasn't, that wasn't an easy journey at some points. Out of interest, I mean, how did you think you contracted your SCD at such, such a young age? Was it literally like the first time you had sex or something? Well, at the time I was already sexually active and I'd had more than one partner. I don't know from whom I contracted it. I was too petrified of trying to approach anyone and asking whether or not they had been tested or whether or not they had been diagnosed and whether or not they knew they had an STI. So I don't actually know who I contracted it from, which is fairly irrelevant at this point. Everybody always wants to know the origin and they want to have answers and they want to be able to point a finger and things like that. But it takes two to engage in sexual and partnered sexual activity, right? So I was also responsible and I knew there was risk. I was totally ignorant of how relevant the risk was to me. I thought like, oh, I'm not sleeping with anybody who has an infection and, you know, everybody I'm sleeping with is clean, quote unquote, which is a word that we don't use. And I can explain that later. But in my 16 year old teenage mind, I was thinking that was a risk that I didn't have to worry about. I was on birth control at the time. So I thought like, oh, I'm being, I'd gone to Planned Parenthood. I thought I was being being responsible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I thought no issues or whatever. And so, yeah, it was a complete shock. But at that time I was completely, or I guess, yeah, I was sexually active and had been having been engaging in partnered sexual activities. So I'm guessing it's from penetrative sex, although it could have been from oral sex too. I just don't, I don't know at this point. Yeah. That's one of the confusions I want to get into later to help people understand that. Cause I think there's a lot of myths and a lot of misunderstandings and Really? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I know if you Google, I just find it terrible. You can't get proper information out of the uh, the sites, the clinical sites, anything out there. I feel it's just, it's kind of, kind of funny because there's a lot of money and campaigns that go into it and stuff. And I still feel like it's just a big mess out there. Totally. <laughs> Which is why we're talking to you to help uh, clarify some of this stuff. So also like since then, because, you know, one of the, the things you started talking about is that you can have relationships, you can have a fruitful sex life afterwards, you know, it'd be helpful if you just kind of relate your story afterwards. Like, have you had a full, fully developed life or either the kind of like things that you have to manage or anything? Like what are, what are the big differences or are there any, any from you uh, compared to other people? Yeah. My sex life has not really changed. And I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it ultimately, it shouldn't have to. What ends up happening a lot of times when people get diagnosed is now they're having to have a conversation that they didn't have prior to their diagnosis, which would I would I would counter with, we should all be having these sexual health conversations with our partners. We just aren't. And I'm practical about that. And I think that's kind of where some of the campaigns that you see, all this money is being put into awareness and testing, encouraging testing and encouraging condom usage and stuff like that. But I don't think we're talking to people on a peer-to-peer level, on a practical level, what really is happening in in and outside of the bedroom. And these conversations just don't go down. It's actually irregular for you to have a conversation about sexual health. And people get really weirded out when you start talking about condoms and safer sex and stuff like that, because they're like, well, why, you know, are you sleeping around with a lot of people? They make these assumptions, like, because you're cognizant of it and you're being mindful and practical and and considering other people's health and your own, then all of a sudden that might be a red flag, which it should be the other 
other way around. It should be if we're not having those conversations, that should be your red flag. So for me, I've never had a partner not want to have sex with me because I have an STI. And that's not everyone's experience, mind you. So I have to be, I have to be, I have to at least be transparent about that and, and acknowledge that some people do have rejections as a result. They might tell somebody and they might, they might just close to them that they have an STI and then the person chooses not to engage in activities with them. They're just not willing to take the risk at that time. And that's acceptable and that's understandable. And we all have that right to say that I'm not ready to consider that risk at this time. But for me, I have not had a, a single partner. And I like to say that I'm an equal opportunity dater. I've dated every different kind of person. I mean, from your preppy people to your redneck country folks, I mean, I don't know, to stereotype and things like that. But I mean, I've really dated all different kinds of men in particular, and it's it, it's never it's never stopped a relationship from happening. And actually, and even so far as they've said, really, that's all you have to tell me? Like I've sat them down and said like, oh, I have a conversation or I want to talk to you about something. And then they said, oh, geez, I thought you were going to tell me that you were pregnant or I thought you were going to say something worse than that. Or, or the response has been, well, this doesn't change who you are, does it? And I'm like, no, that has nothing to do with who I am and my personality. It's just something that we have to consider. So for the most part, yeah, it has not changed a single thing in terms of my sex life and my relationships or dating or anything like that. I will say that it certainly is a risk that I have to consider. And so I have genital herpes, so that's forever and for life. And I do get active outbreaks. Um, not everybody with genital herpes gets outbreaks. Some people are asymptomatic, which means that they don't actually have the physical signs or symptoms, but they can still transmit the infection to somebody else. And those people could still get physical signs or symptoms. It's just based on how your body handles the, how your immune system handles, handles the infection. And for me, I actually do get outbreaks. So when I have outbreaks, I don't engage in sexual activities with a partner and I do take other preventative measures to reduce the risk of transmission and things like that. So that's been discussions that I've had with people that I probably wouldn't have had that detailed of a discussion with, but should have, I suppose. And so, yeah, so there's been a little bit more conversation in that realm. But other than that, I mean, yeah, it hasn't limited sexual activity. It hasn't limited relationships. And for me, it's been kind of a, 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 no, a no issue, a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. Great to hear. I know people who have contracted uh, STDs or SDIs. And um, it's interesting on the herpes thing that sometimes it's asymptomatic. We've uh, spoken to people before about this, uh, notably an ex-porn actor who was talking about, you know, STD testing in the industry mm -hmm. and so on. And he was talking about this asymptomatic aspect. So lots of people thinking they don't have it when, when they, they actually do have it. You know, so I have friends that have never had symptoms and then they had an outbreak many years after actually an, an infection would have occurred. And it's because they get a damaged immune system sometimes, you know, like they've been traveling abroad or something, you know, got a tropical infection or something like that. And then they get it and then they start thinking, who have I slept with recently? And then they remember, oh, wait a minute. It was, it was more likely, you know, like 10 years ago down the road mm -hmm. because I've been super careful lately. So it is a little bit tricky like that, how you contract these things. You can't exactly jump to conclusions because they don't necessarily always have the uh, symptoms straight away. So just, we've been throwing a few terms around, so I wanted to clear those up. STD and STI, what is the difference, if any, between those two things? That's a really good question. We get that a lot. At the STD project, we use them interchangeably. We started, we named the STD project, the STD project, because STDs, that term is the most widely known. It's the most 
common thrown around term. So any layman out there or whatever, you know, your, your friends, your family and things are going to understand that term and they are, they can recognize it. So we wanted to make sure that we're reaching out to not only those folks who are in the sexual health community or have a college education and somehow tapped into public health and have heard those terms before, but we want to make sure that everybody is, that this information is accessible. So that said, technically STI is the most accurate, medically accurate term. So when we're talking about medical jargon, STI is sexually transmitted infection and STD is sexually transmitted disease. So an infection means that you don't necessarily have to have signs or symptoms. You just are infected with the bacteria, parasite, or virus. Um, Those are the three different kinds of STIs that there are, parasitic, viral, and bacterial. So you can have the infection without noticing any signs or symptoms or having any kind of disease present. So that's what the difference is between the disease. A disease means that you actually have noticeable signs and symptoms, whereas an infection means you're just infected and you don't necessarily have signs or you don't have signs or symptoms at all. But with both STI and STD, if even if you're infected, you can still transmit the infection to other folks. And they, like I said, kind of with the herpes example, with having an outbreak, even if you have the infection and you don't have signs or symptoms, you may transmit it to someone else and they wind up with signs or symptoms. And so then they would have an STD. So all STDs are preceded by an STI. The infection is the first step. And then some people end up having signs or symptoms, but the most common symptom of all STIs, all STDs or STIs is no symptom at all. Most people never know that they actually have an STI or STD. And sometimes depending on the infection, your body will clear it on its own. Other times you need to have it treated or you have it for life. It just depends on what infection we're talking about. So And also in terms of the sexual health community, STI is a little friendlier, we think. And that's kind of why you hear STI a little more commonly now, because an infection sounds a little more friendly or a little less worrisome than a disease. Disease sounds like big doom and gloom and oh no. And people worry about death and all sorts of really big ramifications, which there are big ramifications for both STIs and STDs. But we use them interchangeably. You could say both and you would be fine saying both. But if you're being 100% medically accurate, all STDs are, are preceded by an ST or all STDs are preceded by an STI. You have the infection first and then disease if you have signs or symptoms. Right. And not everyone has an STD. Yes. That has an STI. Um, what Correct. are the most common STIs that people should be aware of? Um, I think probably the number one that comes to my mind is HPV. So... The numbers state that if you think about it, okay, so HPV is the human papilloma virus. There are two main kinds of HPV. There's low risk and high risk. Low risk result in genital warts, and then high risk are the kinds that can cause cervical cancer, penile cancer, throat cancer. And so the number of the statistics say that 80% of all people by the age of 50 will have contracted HPV at some point in their lives. So 80% of all people by the age of 50 will have contracted HPV at some point. Now, HPV tends to clear on its own within about six months to two years for most people, both low risk and high risk strains. So it's fairly rare to contract HPV and then have it progress into cancer if you have a high risk strain. And it's also fairly rare to have a low risk strain have genital warts happen for more than two years, unless you're immunocompromised, unless you 
have an immune system deficiency as a result of maybe the HIV virus, hepatitis, or some other reason that your immune system might be compromised, then sometimes you end up having HPV for longer and your body has a harder time clearing it on its own. But most people clear it on its own. Most people never know that they have it. Men can't even be tested for HPV. The only way to be diagnosed with HPV as a male is if you have the low risk strain and you're having physical symptoms, which would be genital warts. Otherwise, you never know that you have it. You could be transmitting it to other people and then, you know, somebody could end up and it could develop into cancer, but that's fairly rare. So HPV, so many people, which is, I put out this number because so many people will say when you're talking about myths and things like, oh, I've never had an STI. I don't even know anyone who's ever had an STI. Like, no, it's not an issue for me, blah, blah, blah. When it's like actually 80% of all people will have HPV at some point. They may have cleared it on their own and never have even known they had it. But I put that number out there because that's one infection out of all of the infections. So according to the World Health Organization, there are 30 plus STIs out there. And when we're talking about one, we're only talking about one when we're talking about HPV. And 80% of all people will contract HPV at some point. So the reason I kind of put out these numbers is not to freak everybody out and make everybody worried about like, oh my gosh, I need to go hide in a, in a rubber bubble or something. It's that they're so common. It's really a very common thing, but we just don't talk about it. And so everybody has no idea what the real risk is. And then when you talk about it and say, and it's all of a sudden like this big, like, ew, and it's really gross and oh my gosh. And, and it just, you just get a lot of people freaking out as soon as you bring up STIs and STDs. So yeah, HPV is, I think, one of the most common when you're talking about bacterial infections. There's there's trick, chlamydia, gonorrhea. Chlamydia is really common. Those ones um, are treatable and curable. Pubic lice is really common. Herpes is quite common as well, HSV1. Wait, wait, wait. Pubic lice sounds really scary. What pubic is lice is basically the same thing as head lice, just tiny little bugs that bite okay. you and... Yeah, and live in your and live in. Your, are they insects or what? Yeah. Are, what are they? Yep, they're little bugs. Okay. They're, they're tiny little, little parasites. So they're that's a parasitic STI. Yeah. So they they live okay. off of your. They eat your blood, and <laughs> which is it is really gross. Thinking of bugs in general, I mean, even though I talk about how STIs are so common, and I understand that they're still gross. Nobody wants an infection, and when you talk about yeah. little bugs living in your in your pubic hair in general. So is that what what's the one called the clap? Or, um, yep, the clap is gonorrhea. Okay. And then there was a term for the lice, which was something else. Crabs. Just because I know there's jargon. Crabs, yeah, crabs. There you yeah. go. I want to make sure people <laughs> make the connections <laughs> yeah. here. Are there any, is there any other jargon which is thrown around? Let's see. Uh, the HIV would be HIV, the herp. I don't know. Kind of those are just shortened for herpes. Right, right. Uh, hmm. Crabs. What am I thinking of? Yeah. Tricks. I can't remember which uh, rock band it was, but apparently their whole bus had the crabs at one point. At where? Uh, like I was watching a doc. They had crabs on the bus. You know, they go around these touring in these buses. Oh. So I can't remember. It was one of the hard rock. It wasn't Metallica, but it was a similar band to that. And there's a documentary. I'm not the one spreading gossip. But, you know, apparently at one point, everyone <laughs> basically um, had it, the whole band. They spread it throughout. So the girls, the, you know, the drummers, everyone in the whole, the driver, everyone had it. It was disgusting, apparently. Oh, yeah. So, like, I know that just on that one, like, I know everyone, like, it's very common for people to shave these days, right? Or wax. Mm -hmm. Does that prevent it or make it more obvious? It's certainly going to reduce. Now, it's interesting because if you're shaving genital hair, it might reduce what they're going to hang on to and live in. And so they would mm. be a little more noticeable because there wouldn't be as much hair for them to hide in. And there really wouldn't be anything there for them to, because the, the pubic lice kind of like hangs onto the little hair shafts and like 
crawls through your genitals and, you know, bites you and that causes bumps and it itches and whatever. So it's just like, it's just like lice, just in a different location and um, like head lice or whatever that you see on children. Right. And sometimes people spread pubic lice with like beards and oral sex and stuff like that and vice versa. So some, you do see kind of fairly rare cases because people notice it right away when it's on their face, but you see sometimes somebody coming in with it in their beard or something like that. But the pubic lice is treatable though. That totally goes away. And mm. that it's just, it sounds like that one's just tricky to know if you have it. Well, no, you, you pretty much that one, you pretty much know right away because it itches and okay. it bothers you. And mm. that one you're going to get, okay. I mean, that's pretty much an STD right out the gate because you're going to have signs and symptoms. You're going to have little red bumps that okay. are itchy. And um, you may notice the actual, the lice are teeny tiny. You may notice them or the teeny tiny eggs that accompany them Mm. and that kind of thing. But the interesting part about shaving though, I will have to say is that yes, that may reduce your risk of pubic lice a little bit because then you're kind of minimizing the home in which that they would hang out in. However, shaving can put you at an increased risk of bacterial infections and or skin to skin transmitted infections. So like HPV and herpes and molluscum contagiosum molluscum is another skin to skin transmitted infection that causes little itchy bumps those things if you are reducing you're increasing the friction and you're reducing the barrier by taking the hair away and so then you're mm. providing a little bit more risk for some of those other infections and the bacterial infections if you're shaving and you have these tiny cuts and tears that also produces an entry point for infection that might not have been there if you weren't shaving. So I don't know. I mean, it's six to one, half a dozen of the other, I suppose, if you're trying to reduce risk of infection. I wouldn't say that shaving and or not shaving is really the way to go. There are other probably more effective ways, much more effective. There are other much more effective ways to reduce risk of infection. Shaving is not one of them. I just say shaving is your preference and just know that there are risks associated with shaving and not shaving. Is it the same deal with waxing? Yes. Waxing would be, yeah, would be the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Good to know. Okay. So a little detour there. In terms of kind of prevalence right now, like the ones most common, I guess HPV is the most common by the sounds of it. What comes next after that? If we kind of go down. I would this? say then, hmm, let me see. I have it pulled up actually, because I thought that we might be talking about that. So like. Okay. Trick is super common. That's a bacterial. Trick and HPV are two of the most common. So trick is a bacterial infection that's curable. Wait, is that the full name for it? Trick or the trichom? Trick trichomoniasis. So okay. trick is the shortened T R I C H, and then or trichomonas, depending on how it's spelled. It's it's spelled. It's the trichomonas bacteria, but the actual infection is called trichomoniasis. Okay. Some of the treatments that they give treat multiple things. So they'll treat both chlamydia, gonorrhea, antric, and mycoplasma. Mycoplasma is another bacteria. But um, in terms of commonality, I would say trick and HPV are up there. Chlamydia and pubic lice are up there. Probably then scabies and herpes come next. Scabies is another bug that lives under the skin. Um, and oh. <laughs> both the bug itself and the eggs that it lays in your skin bother the skin and cause itching. And that they they make little trails on your skin. It's almost like tiny little scratches that become red and inflamed. And usually that takes a little while for somebody to notice until they're really bothered by it and they're noticing the signs and symptoms. But again, that's curable. You just put a cream on and it goes away. Kids get scabies as well. So sometimes some of these infections, interestingly enough, too, 
go in both directions. Like sometimes they're not always STIs. Sometimes they're transmitted from families and from children, especially in like daycare settings and things like that. So scabies is common. Molluscum is common in children. So this is just through touch or something? Yeah, skin to skin transmission. So right. the three different ways you can transmit infections or two, I guess I should say, it's either through, it would either be from skin to skin transmission or from fluids. And some um, infections are transmitted just from genital fluids, like saliva and things, and other infections require a blood transmission. And then you've got your skin to skin. So either genital fluids and saliva or blood transmission or skin to skin transmission. So, okay, that provides quite different prevention strategies, right? Or understanding of what your risk is with which activity. So, I think that would be useful to talk about because I think this is a really big area of confusion. So just to define kind of like the scope of risk for each of those areas, the ones that can just be passed through blood, how would you get that? Blood transmission are going to be the ones that are the not as easy to, to contract, right? Because there would have to be an exchange. So that's going to be things like hepatitis C, HIV, syphilis. I think that's it on my list of ones that I can think of. Zika can be blood transmitted. Yeah. So, so some of the bigger ones that have some long-term big implications, but are certainly you're able to live with them because of the great treatment that's out there. Hepatitis C is now curable. They're saying HIV too, depending on some of this is depending on your access to these treatments and cures, right? But they're all certainly livable with the right kind of medication and management, but those ones are blood transmission. And so then things like Unprotected, so without a barrier, without lube, penetrative sex would be your your way of contracting those infections. So that would be anal or vaginal. Anal, if you were talking about non-protected, so if we're not talking about barriers at all, anal is going to be a little riskier only because the anus is not self-lubricating. So there's a little higher risk for natural cuts and tears when you're engaging in anal sex. So there's just going to be a little bit more likelihood of small, tiny cuts and tears. So that provides an entry point for those infections. Right. Are we talking about microscopic tears? Microscopic cuts and tears is all it takes. So you wouldn't necessarily feel it or know it. It, do, it doesn't necessarily have to be painful. You don't have to see bleeding happening for there to be an entry point, that microscopic, which also happens with vaginal penetrative sex too. Like it's very common for tiny little microscopic cuts and tears, but the vagina is resilient. It heals really quickly, self-lubricates oftentimes. And so oftentimes you don't even notice that that's occurring. So you wouldn't necessarily think like, oh, there was this giant cut where infection came in. It doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to notice that it's even occurring. But so anal sex would be the highest risk unprotected anal sex specifically would be the highest risk because it is not self-lubricating. Then penetrative vaginal sex would be next on the list of risk for blood transmitted infections and really all infections, right? As if it's unprotected, unprotected. If we're going down the list of what's the most risky activity to the least risky activity, unprotected anal sex would be first. Unprotected vaginal penetrative sex would be next unprotected oral sex would be next. And then touching and kissing and things like that would come farther down the line. So there is still some risk, even with things like 
touching and kissing because I mentioned that some stuff is skin to skin transmitted. So there are infections that if you're just like naked together and you're not actually having any penetration or even any oral sex and there's no mouths or anything engaging, there is still risk of scabies and pubic lice and molluscum and herpes and even HPV. So there's actually quite a bit of risk when skin to skin transmission. Okay. So in terms of, is that just kind of like rubbing against each other in the... Yeah. Yeah, in the areas, so grinding, for instance, something like that. Yep, and you have to come in contact. Now, now that being said, depending on the infection, you first of all you have to come in contact with an area that's infected. So, just because I have herpes genitally, if you touch my arm and you're even rubbing my arm very vigorously, you're not <laughs> going to contract herpes because that's not where the infection is located, right? Okay. So, and and that's important to clarify. It seems silly, right? But it's like when I talk about all this, I mean, we've hit on a lot of kind of like the epidemiology of, of these infections and even surface level. And it's like, it gets confusing and you're like, oh my gosh, she's just talked about 20 different infections at three or four different ways to contract them, different kinds of sexual activities. It's, it makes you want to go hide in a rubber bubble, yeah. but that's not the point. The point is to know that there are relevant risks basically with all partnered sexual activities it's just understanding what the risks are and knowing that STIs are super, super common. The majority of people contract one or multiple at some point in times in their lives. Nobody talks about it, so you wouldn't know, but it's not the end of the world. And so knowing that, consider your risk, consider the risks you're willing to accept because there's a reward too. a healthy, happy sex life is amazing and really good for you and your body and all of the chemicals and things that are involved and that are positive about that. So for every risk, there's an equal and opposite reward and vice versa. And so understand that and then move forward. So that's, you know, I mean, I just want to kind of put that PSA out there. Like, even though we're talking about all these details, I hate to, I'm, I'm certainly not intending to freak everybody out any more than we're already freaked out about STIs, right? So which ones, uh, there's two scenarios I think would be helpful to have more clarification because I think there's confusion around them. Sure. The first one is oral sex. I think people really don't know what's happening with oral sex, what they ex- can be exposed to, what they can't. Uh, and there's all sorts of stuff they could read about that. And then when they are protected, where they're wearing a condom, like what are they, what are they still exposed to in terms of risks? Because I think a lot of people just assume that, you know, I've got my condom on, I can do anything I want as long as I have my condom on. <laughs> right. Excuse me, my allergies are bothering me. I'm trying not to sniffle on the podcast. Okay. So great questions. And the thing is, is and condoms will reduce a lot of the risk. They're really a great way. They're the only way to reduce both your chances of STIs and unplanned pregnancy together. And I guess that's if we're talking about male and female um, partnered activities. But that said, so that's your only way to reduce both of those potential risks. And condoms greatly, very significantly reduce the risk of infection from bloodborne pathogens. So that would be your hepatitis C and HIV and syphilis, as well as syphilis can be transmitted via blood and the actual in contact with the sores themselves. So the fluids coming from the sores, but oftentimes you don't see that as as readily. So that being said, condoms are great for that. They do not though, however, they will reduce the risk, but they do not entirely eliminate the risk. Actually, nothing entirely eliminates the risk unless you're being abstinent. And that's the only safe sex. That's why we call it safer sex nowadays instead of safe sex, because there's no such thing as safe sex. There's safer, but they don't 
reduce hugely anyways, not nearly as much as the bacterial infections and the fluid-borne pathogens, they don't reduce the skin-to-skin transmission risk. So if somebody has a genital wart or a herpes outbreak or molluscum on their inner thigh or something, and you're still coming into contact with that because the condom won't cover that area, you're still at risk of infection there. And again, actually though, some of that stuff, it just depends on the infection we're talking about. People are really paranoid about herpes, but you can touch a herpes outbreak, not that this is what somebody wants to do, but just hypothetically, you can actually come in contact with it. And if it doesn't have an entry point into the system, if it's not touching um, on a genital area where there are mucous membranes or it's not touching on an open sore or whatever, you know, like I put cream on my outbreaks and wash my hands and I don't have herpes all over my hands. Right, right. So your fingers, like, you know, things like that, it, it shouldn't be a problem. It's not such a big deal there. Yeah. I mean, there's just kind of just being cognizant, washing your hands afterwards. If you're fingering somebody and you're worried about maybe you came into contact with something that you didn't touch or see or that you didn't feel. So yeah. So condoms reduce your risk, but they don't take it away entirely. It certainly is a great way in which to mitigate that risk and to, and to make it a little bit less worrisome. Right. But you still want to have a conversation. If you really are super concerned about STIs, then you want to have a conversation about how often have you been tested or how many partners are you Mm -hmm. having protected or unprotected sex with that might be relevant. Or maybe to you, donating a condom is enough in order to reduce your risk. And and then you're willing to accept whatever else comes as a result. And that's okay too. That's understandable and acceptable. And then when we're talking about oral sex, a lot of people think that, oh, well, I'm not having penis and vagina sex. So I'm not really having sex. This is my safe way of reducing my chances of infection and pregnancy and stuff. And yes, oral sex will reduce your chance of pregnancy. You're not going to get pregnant that way. However, there still is a fairly significant risk of infection from STIs, herpes being one of them. So people who get cold sores, which is most often, or or I should say commonly cold sores on the mouth are HSV-1, but those can be transmitted to the genitals. So if I have a cold sore on my mouth and I go down on a partner, I can give them HSV-1 genitally. It's actually the most common form of genital infection in the UK right now of of, um, herpes. So people, so people have been busy with oral here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which good for you guys. You know, like across the pond, you guys get down. I'm mm-hmm. on board. Like good for you. But but I think that there's yeah, this misconception that, oh, okay, well, we'll just do this and then we'll be safe. And then people are getting shocked when all of a sudden they have HSV one genitally. It's more common right now in the UK than HSV two genitally. There are more new cases. Interesting of HSV-1 genitally. So yeah, and and we're seeing that way more and more too in the US here. So it is, it's like people don't realize that they're of the same strain of virus. They're in the same family. They're all the herpes family and they're almost, they're very little differences and they can, herpes can be on any part of your body. It just so happens to live orally and genitally because of mucous membranes. So we have mucous membranes in our mouth and our ears, in our nose, in the vagina is all mucous membranes that are the vulva, I should say, of it and internal then the vagina as mucous membranes and inside the urethra as mucous membranes. And what mucous membranes are, are is a, it's a porous material intended to trap unwanted pathogens and it's intended to trap it. And then your immune system is supposed to attack it and get rid of it before it enters your system. However, because it can't combat these STIs, it's porous and it traps the, the infection and the infection goes right in. So any any area 
that you expose a mucous membrane to an infection, that's your entry point. So any place that has that, that's where you can get infected, basically. So that's why you see HSV herpes. You see herpes in the mouth and in the in the genitals most often because that's where those mucous membranes are housed. I don't know if that got too technical. And like, no, no, people, this is but... this is great information. This is the kind of clarity that's needed. Uh, So thank you very much for that. You know, as you mentioned syphilis in the Azores, I can't remember. What I remember is that Mao Zedong got it and went crazy (laughs) because I I lived in China for a bit. But um, in terms of what it actually looks like, you said sores, is it similar to herpes or something kind of out? They get outbreaks and then they go away again and then they can come back. Yeah, they can. And syphilis is on the rise right now in the U.S. I want to say I heard that it was on the downswing in the UK, syphilis is, but then overall STI rates are high or going up. So syphilis has gone down in the UK, up in the US. But yes, it is sores. The sores are uh, quite a bit different, I would say, than herpes. Yeah, oftentimes people will get a sore or two and then they go away and they and then the infection lies dormant for a while until it moves into a different stage. There's stage one, two, and three of syphilis. Yeah. The stage that you're talking about where people go crazy is stage three. And one of the gangsters uh, in Al Capone or something, I want to say, is rumored to have died from syphilis, too. Yeah, I'd have to clarify that. But anyway, that's rumor. So I guess it's irrelevant. But um, yeah, syphilis, it's transmitted both um, via blood as well as if you came into contact with the actual sore themselves. So not just any genital fluid you'd want to have to, you'd kind of have to come into contact with the fluid in the sore to transmit it. So it's not super easily transmitted, but it is on the rise, I think, just because people just aren't, they don't feel like it's a concern for them. I mean, I just think the more, every time I talk to somebody, I just had an argument with somebody in Staples the other day of all places. I have the weirdest conversations when I tell people what I do for a living and mm-hmm. people want to talk to me about it everywhere I go. And I'm, I was literally in Staples trying to get a, um, a wireless router and the guy was telling me his story and he said, oh, he was clean for all things and he had been tested for everything. And when I told him, you can't actually be tested for everything. Oh yeah. I mean, he argued with me about it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, let me break it down for you. So I think it's because, but, but that to me shows how pervasive the lack of knowledge is stigma about STIs are. I mean, it just speaks volumes to how much more work needs to be done yeah. and how we're falling short in terms of education. Yeah. It's a combination of misinformation and fear. Right. We, yes. we like to avoid things. Everyone's scared of STDs. No one likes them, right? Totally. And especially given the media attention and the way it's portrayed. So anything that we're kind of scared of and where there's tons of misinformation, like I say, if you Google, it's really hard to get a yes or no answer or any clear information. So it just spreads confusion. And then I think people run with the uh, most common stories that are passed between friends or something. I don't know, you know, what the base source of information is. 100%. It's weird too, because when you think of it, it's like, we don't seem to be afraid of like the cold and the flu. Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody wants to have the cold or the flu, but nobody goes like, okay, which door handle did I touch that had the infection? Which bathroom did I forget to wash my hands long enough in? I mean, we don't trace it back and try and find a culprit. We don't freak out. We don't hide in a corner. I mean, we don't feel like our life is over. And again, nobody wants additional infections or any kind of malady whatsoever, but I think it's because we're so afraid to talk about sex. I mean, 
that's the, that's the interesting part is right. not only do people want to talk to me about STIs, when I tell them that I run an STI website, they want to talk to me about anal sex. They want to talk to me about the kink that they were interested in and that they thought about and that they were, how do I talk to my partner? I mean, stuff that's really almost out of my, it's really out of my realm of expertise, but it's like, it's obvious that people just need this resource and this outlet because it's like, everybody feels this way. And I just want to tell people like everybody I know. So I have like, I don't know, some eight or 900 friends or something on Facebook now. Right. And I literally do not know anybody anymore who has not had an experience with an STI. I mean, I've had people come out of the woodwork from high school and I graduated 16, 17 years ago now. And I've had people reach out and it's always the same. They send me a message and they say, Hey, Janelle, like, you know, long time no see. I see the work that you're doing. I think it's great. You know, I'd love to meet up with you for a beer sometime. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, sure. And so I meet up with them for a beer and then they have, they pour their hearts out and tell the story. Always the same thing. And I, oh, and I try not to make assumptions about what to expect or anticipate. Like maybe they just do really want to hang out. No, <laughs> no, they really want to tell me about some sort of experience, some STI, like their sex lives. And I'm like, geez, we all feel this way. Everybody I know feels this way. Everybody has a story and wants to talk about it, but it's, it's like a, it's society has made us feel so guilty and so shameful. It's shame. It's, it's, they made us feel so bad about our sex lives that now anything that happens as a result of it is bad and doom and gloom. And, and then it also inhibits us from finding that information and in using our resources and our knowledge base and stuff and asking questions and yeah, it's just, I know I could, obviously this is my soapbox. Yeah, and being better at prevention and management if we had this information. So it's super counterproductive. Super, exactly. You just mentioned that STIs were on the rise, I mm -hmm. believe. Could you give us a bit of a trend so people can understand, like, has this been going over the last 10 years? Is it specific STIs or what? So this on? is what's interesting about that to me. So the number of reported cases is on the rise, is higher. And that is a trend and that's been going up for the last few years. However, like all statistics, there are more questions that we need to ask about this because this is reported cases. So like the reported cases annually, according to the CDC, and this is in the US, are about 20 million new reported cases every year. At any one point in time though, when you delve into these numbers, there's about 55 to 65 people who have an STI. So there's 20 million report, new reported cases every year. But at any point in time, if we were to survey the general population, there's about 55 to 65 million living with an STI, whether short-term or long-term. And what that means is not all cases, first of all, get reported to the CDC. Not all STIs get tested and or treated and or noticed, right? So we talked about earlier how the most common symptom is no symptom at all. Most people have no idea that they have an infection whatsoever. So you would have to go and get tested at a place that does reporting, and you'd have to have an actual physical test done you couldn't get diagnosed visually. And then that would get reported if it was a non- physical, non-visual diagnosis, if it was an actual test that went to a lab and then it got reported to the CDC, that's where that, that 20 million is coming from. And that's where they're talking about there's been an increase. Now, that could mean there's just been an increase in people getting tested. Are more people getting tested? I would say probably not, but there is an increase in population. Naturally, every year population increases, so there's going to be more infection unless we're really doing a good job at limiting and reducing the number of infections. But what I'm thinking is, we don't know if more people are getting tested, if 
there are just more centers and more accurate reporting going on. We don't know if it's just a population increase. We don't really know, like the media will have you believe that, oh my gosh, everybody is now right. infected with STIs, run for the hills. And you know, it's the, it's the STI apocalypse going on, but it's not that severe, I don't think. I mean, I certainly think that the number hasn't decreased, which is interesting with all of the people working. And there is a lot of work in sexual health advocacy and, and awareness and stuff going on. And there's more than there even was five years ago when the STD project launched. So it's obviously not making a huge impact. But when we think about testing, so if you think about going to your local clinic, if you think about going to your doctor's office, it doesn't matter where you go. There's only about four to six at max. Well, four to six often when you say, I want to get a full panel, I want to get tested for everything. Test me for all, all the things you can test me for. Usually people only get tested for four to six infections. And remember earlier, I said that there are 30 plus infections, according to the World Health Organization, that are STIs. So if you're only getting tested for four to six, there's all sorts of STIs out there that aren't getting tested, diagnosed, and documented. So the number is actually probably higher. Even the CDC's number, when they say 20 million and that the number is on the rise, even in small print, it says this number is likely much, much higher. These are only the reported cases kind of thing. So I don't know. Is it is it something to be hugely alarmed about? I don't necessarily think so. It doesn't crazy alarm me because one, it's a statistic and you have to look at the nuances and the details behind that. And I'm curious if more people are getting, are more people are getting tested or are more people, are they just documenting more cases? And what about all these undocumented? Are are more tests being done? There's a wider range of tests. I find the whole testing area a bit of a mess also. I don't know about you. I've traveled a lot. And I try to do it pretty regularly, six every six months or so, and so on over those years. And so I've done it in many different countries. And sure. it's a bit of a nightmare every time I do it. HIV is normally relatively straightforward because, you know, that one's such a big deal. But where it comes to all the other ones, like getting consistent types of tests, getting uh, the same types of infections tested for, it's I'm still trying to figure, figure it out, quite honestly. Like, I'm, I just want to go and I'm in London at the moment. I want to go and get a full stack of tests, right? I want to get a really comprehensive one. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the NHS is going to help me with that. I went a few years ago to the NHS and it was really hard just to get the information out of them what I was getting tested for. So NHS is the government health body here uh, where you go to uh, clinics, STD clinics here. I wasn't happy with those. I was like, you know, I need to find some proper full panel of tests. If I want to really know what's going on, this isn't going to do. Mm-hmm. I haven't been for government testing in the US. I, I go privately trying to figure out my panels and stuff in the US. So I don't know what the situation is with the government ones there, which are typically more accessible. I don't know how it is in the US, but you know, in the UK, I think most people are going to the government clinics because they're accessible, they're free and all of this. Is that the same situation in the US or is it more people doing private? No, I mean, mostly most folks are going to go to your local health department or to a Planned Parenthood. Your NHS is similar to our Planned Parenthood, although even though NHS for you guys is government funded and Planned Parenthood is private, but they operate similarly. They kind of do similar stuff. And yeah, it's it's because it's low cost and or free. But with that, of course, or the health department with that is you only get like four to six tests done. And you like you said, you don't always get the same type of test done. Sometimes they're updating and changing the type of test they're doing all the time. And that said, you're not getting necessarily you can't get tested for everything under the sun anyways, but you and you may not even be getting tested for as many things as you could be if you purchased a private test. But the private tests are certainly not cheap. There's 
we link to a couple of sites that we've worked with and that I, I always specifically go through the testing process myself before we ever recommend anything on the STD project. And there's one STD check, an STD test express that we work with. They have like 10 different kinds of tests that you can do, which is one of the highest numbers. I mean, that's the highest panel if you want to get the full panel, but it's like 150 to 200 bucks to get it done. And not everybody has that lying around, especially when you don't feel like it's a big risk. And that's a, a huge concern. You know, not everybody wants to spend that kind of money. So you're right. It's not consistent across the board. It's certainly not consistent country to country. The UK tests for mycoplasma, whereas the US doesn't. Mycoplasma is a bacteria infection, bacterial infection that's fairly quite common and it's on the rise. And the UK readily tests for it oftentimes in their panels, but we don't test for it over here. The stuff that treats chlamydia and gonorrhea and trick will treat mycoplasma too. So if we're treating someone, we think, oh, well, it just kind of wraps up all in there. But if but if they didn't test positive for one of those infections and we're not treating them, they may still have mycoplasma and we're not doing anything about it. So some of that's just kind of health standards across the board are not consistent. Yeah, there's a lot of and there's even, I mean, it's understandable too, because not all the tests are consistent. There can be false positives and false negatives, depending on which tests we're talking about. Like you said, HIV, you can get pretty commonly in those quick rapid tests. And that across the board has been, there's been a lot of work done in the HIV realm. Still more work needs to be done, of course, always. When Charlie Sheen came out as HIV positive, it reminded me how much work needs to be done in terms of stigma and education and prevention. But even so, I think that there's been a lot of really positive work done in that direction, specifically for that infection. But the rest, it's like, it's a crapshoot. You don't really know what you're going to get tested for. And most people just think, give me a full panel. They don't even ask what they've been tested for. They just trust that it's all the same and it's and it's going to be good. But it, yeah. basically the, the medical testing, the labs aren't, just, aren't there yet. The technology is not really there. It's not super accurate, super sensitive all the time. It varies per test. So you can get variations of of more sensitive and less sensitive and it's yeah it's, it's a minefield so do you have like so you recommended one panel for the us there that you work with std express how do you recommend people go about testing and when if you have like a testing strategy or you know i, I don't know which makes sense if you get into a new relationship or when are the good times are probably like an economical strategy so you know, just depending on the lifestyle. So, so someone who's going to be on a constant dating scenario and someone who's just getting into a relationship, what are the different scenarios and different testing you, you'd recommend? Sure. And even, um, I don't think STD Test Express operates in the UK, but your equivalent, the, the UK's equivalent would be better to know is another private testing provider out there. So there certainly are, they are out there. But like I said, again, that's coming out of your pocket. Some of them, STD Test Express accepts insurance and some of them are starting to, but again, it depends on what your insurance will pay to. But that said, all right, so if you're trying to be as sexually healthy and responsible as possible, on the one end of the spectrum of being like uber sexually responsible and healthy and really aware, you would be getting tested before and after each new partner. So if you're having multiple partners and maybe multiple partners per week, you're getting tested every probably four to six weeks. And the deal, the reason why we say before and after each new partner and, and or every four to six weeks, which that's a lot, right? But it just depends on kind of what your lifestyle is and what risk you're willing to accept. 
But that's because some there's an incubation period and a window period in terms of testing. So the incubation period is how long it takes for you to, from the time you got infected, from the time for you to notice signs or symptoms. The window period is the time you got infected to the time that your infection is recognizable on a test. And every test is different depending on what they're testing for, whether they're testing for the actual infection or a reaction from the infection or whatever. So to try and encompass this window period so that the test is accurate and is depicting an accurate result, then every four to six weeks, if you're if you're sexually active and you have multiple partners and you might be changing out partners on a regular basis, I would say every four to six weeks. But again, then if you're doing something like that, you could go to your local health department and, uh, and do the tests that they offer for free. And I would say my thought process is, here's the deal. So yes, there's all this risk. There's all of these infections you could potentially expose yourself to. And anytime you're engaging in partnered sexual activity, there's some sort of risk. And instead of getting really freaked out or being too paranoid about like, okay, which test are they doing and what kind of test are they doing this time? And did they test me for the same thing as they did last time? I would say kind of like you're, like you were saying that you did, like I, every six months or so, maybe every three to six months, you go in, get tested as often as possible. You also make a cognizant decision to choose whether or not you'd like to use barriers regularly. Maybe you always use barriers if you're doing penetrative sex. Maybe you always use barriers for both oral and penetrative sex. Or maybe you also incorporate lube. Lube is also uh, reduces your risk. So it reduces your risk of friction. And so that reduces the risk of the tiny cuts and tears. So that's also an, a safer sex approach. So maybe you decide to incorporate a couple of these. And then at the end of the day, you say, you know what? I'm going to accept the rest of that risk. I'm being as responsible as I can within my budget, within the lifestyle choices that I'm making. I'm deciding what's going to be good for me. And then I'm going to choose what risk I'm willing to accept and go from there kind of thing. I think that that's the most practical way of viewing that, you know, and like, it is important to know what you're getting tested for. And I would still ask that and, and, you know, maybe write it down or just keep it in your mind of what you're being regularly tested for just so. Or just keep the records, the reports. So you can refer back if something happens later, you can figure, figure things out. But if you can't, if you don't know what you were tested for last year, and if you ever do come up with something, it might, that might have been useful information. That's true. Yeah. If you do want to pinpoint it. And sometimes the thing is, is because they stay dormant and because you may have had a false negative, you may never know exactly who it came from or what time period it came from. And I would say that that's probably the least important aspect of when someone gets diagnosed. That's usually the number one place they go, like who gave it to me and why and they didn't tell me and all of this. And and I understand that train of thought. It's just, it's not productive. It's not productive in moving forward and being responsible and getting on with your life, basically. Cool. So if you're getting into a relationship scenario, is it worth maybe like getting a fuller panel? Assuming that it's going to be a monogamous relationship for a while, it's worth investing a bit more money, getting it done properly. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, why not? why not do that as a date night, you know, go out and then have a beer afterwards, like cheers to us and our sexual health. I mean, you can make it kind of a fun thing. You can make it kind of, I mean, it's going to be some of that stuff is awkward, no matter what you do a little bit, because you're not used to doing it, but why not do that together and, you know, make a commitment and be, and be on board with not a commitment specifically. I'm not saying you have to be monogamous, but a commitment to your sexual health and to being responsible and to caring about one another's health and saying like, Hey, I care about you and me and I want us to feel good about our choices. So 
let's go do this, you know, and and then we can celebrate afterwards and have a pint or whatever. So yeah, I'd like to see more people do that. It so doesn't, it doesn't happen. I mean, it just doesn't, but I would love to see that, that the tide change a little bit. Yeah. I think it's the people aren't used to the conversations yet. Mm -hmm. They're quite shy of the conversations. I agree with you. It can be a bonding experience right? going through that together, but it has to be brought up in the right way. It's easy to offend people or, you know, it depends on the type of person you're talking to as well. Like some, if they're already on board and they're already responsible, then they're going to like, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go. You know, totally. sounds like a great idea. I've never been with my boyfriend before. Finally, you know, I get to go and do it together. It depends on the person you're talking to and where they're coming from. They're like concerned about you're accusing them or something. You have to be very careful about about that. Like, I'm I'm not accusing you of anything here, but, you know, I'm just someone who's really responsible about my health. It's something I do routinely. You know, I figure we should talk about this since we're, we're hanging out and we're, we're doing this. Right, exactly. Yeah, so thanks for that, that testing information because it is a little bit of a, a minefield there. Um, so I'm sure that's cleared up a, a bunch of stuff for people. Now, let's say, like, kind of, kind of moving on a bit. Actually, one thing I wanted to just go on because I guess we didn't, Point it was like you did mention kissing and getting stuff and i don't want people to be thinking what am i going to get from kissing what can we get from just kissing mm, well i mean you can contract herpes the oral kind like i said and the oral kind can be transmitted to the genitals later and vice versa kissing is probably the least concern i would say that that people are going to have especially when there are no open cuts and tears in the mouth there's no sores or anything like that really Herpes is going to be about it. Oh, mono, mononucleosis. So mono is common in teenagers and in high schools and things like that. Mono is just a virus that eventually your body, as long as you're not immunocompromised again, your body will clear up on its own. It takes a couple of weeks and it makes you feel sick like the cold or the flu. Yes, mono is one of the one of the risks in kissing. And then cytomegalovirus is another virus. Um, CMV, it's um, you see it in babies and young children too. It can be passed from mother to child, but is very uncommon. So CMV is uncommon. Mono is common, but clears up on its own. So really the biggest probably concern for kissing um, or making out with somebody would be herpes, would be HSV-1 and or if somebody had HSV-2 orally, which is possible too. HPV, I guess I should say HPV, potentially if somebody already has HPV, orally is is a risk but it's not as common as hpv genitally right right okay cool actually another thing just on the herpes on the mouth on the cold sores and the mouth herpes you know if you google that it says like 98 percent of people have it i think i'm not sure what to believe have you got any solid information on that um the number off the top of my head for i want to say it's 80 percent of people have uh-huh. But I said, but I might be actually, I'd have to clarify that. So don't take that by right. from. And then they don't necessarily ever get a cold sore. Yeah. Oh, totally. Right. Not everybody even who has it orally gets cold sores. They just carry the infection. Their body is fighting off the, is fighting off the virus for the actual physical signs and symptoms. So yeah, that's the same for both oral and genital herpes. The majority of people are asymptomatic. They don't have any outbreaks, so they don't know that they can track carry the virus. Excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So what are the implications of, say, say we kind of dealt with prevention quite a bit here, but if you have already got one or you catch one, how does it impact your life? Or would you, what would the kind of the first line of advice, if someone just discovers that they have one of these, what's the first line of advice? Uh, 
I'd like to say don't freak out, but they're gonna. I mean, (laughs) that's just what's going to happen because that is what happens right now. My first line of advice is to educate yourself, is to do your research and to find out the just the factual information about the infection itself and how to manage it. But then also what helped me and I really encourage others to do is researching the stigma and the origin of stigma and why that prevails, where it comes from, because what the implications of an STI, the hardest part of being diagnosed with an STI is not the infection itself. It never is. Oftentimes there are no signs or symptoms or it goes away or it's manageable or treatable, whatever it is. It's not the actual infection and the in the physical ramifications. It's the social stigma associated with it. You just feel awful, like you're you're damaged goods and you're tarnished and you're dirty and trashy and all of these things is that you immediately embody and think this is all you and it's and it's not. It's not actual relevant and has no bearing on your character and what kind of person you are whatsoever. Everybody, all walks of life, people from every angle and every corner contract infection. So understanding though that stigma, why it prevails and understanding where it originates and and why it continues, I think helps you to not take it so personally. It helps you to understand, okay, I get where this is coming from. I can I mean, because I've I've heard everything. I've heard every slur, every name that you could call somebody with an STI. I've heard every rude comment. And it and at this point it's kind of a non-issue. It doesn't bother me. It's an I'm nonplussed by it because I realize that it's just a reflection of their lack of information. It's a reflection of what they don't know and don't understand about how common STIs are, how little they really have an impact on your health and your sex life and your dating and all of that. So yeah, so to me, I know better than to take it personally, but I didn't because I, for the longest time, because I I really just felt like, well, if that's what everybody's saying, it must be true about me. So I think that education is, is what it takes in order to empower yourself and to move forward with that, to know, to know better than to, than to just listen to kind of the malarkey that's going on. Right. And of course your site's a good place to get started. Well, we'll put all this, all of those links in the show notes. Cool. Um, so that would probably be the first place to go um, yeah. to start getting your education. And don't stop there. Find additional resources and, and empower, educate yourself that way. We certainly are not the end all be all, that's for sure. The other tricky thing I think uh, for people is communicating about it. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, how you tackled it uh, a little bit earlier, but do you have some specific advice? I'm guessing you should communicate upfront. But, you know, I think for listeners, it, it really helps when you've got some, con- you know, concrete examples and stuff on how to bring this up, how to talk about it, maybe things not to say <laughs> when you're talking to a partner, what, when to bring it up. Is it on the first date? Is it while you're tindering them? <laughs> or, you know, at what point do you bring this up and then have this conversation? That's a good question. There's two schools of thought um, when it comes to to disclosing to a new partner, you can either tell them right up front, right out the gate. You can lay all your cards on the table and say, here it is before you ever even like, yeah, on Tinder or on when you're on your match profile, there's, you could do that if you want. And in there, the idea behind that is that at that point you won't have developed a relationship and an attachment to the person. And so if they choose not to engage in a relationship with you or pursue you, it won't break your heart. So that's the kind of idea behind that. The other, I mean, of course, you always want to tell people before putting them at risk. So before engaging in any partnered activities, you have to disclose to your partner. But that said, I've never told anybody right from the very first start, because to me, 
nobody tells everything, every personal detail and secret and every little nuance about them on the first date. That would be weird. That would be like verbal vomit of here. Let me tell you all the things like <laughs> I, I have halitosis and um, I have stinky feet or I, you know, or my mother never stops calling me and I have a brother in jail or I, I don't even know anything. I have, I have a problem with money, really bad credit. I mean, people just don't go on and on about all these things that, that may not really be relevant to the relationship, but that may change someone's initial opinion of you. I just, we don't share all those things all at once. And to me, so that's one of the areas. If we're not having sex and we're not or engaging in sexual activities, I don't necessarily need to tell you that right out the gate. So that's been my approach because I wanted to, and previously, historically, it's because I wanted to establish some trust before disclosing this very personal information about myself to someone. But I, I see the, I, I understand the putting it all out there, right out the, you know, out the gate. Um, I'm the spokesperson for Positive Singles, which is a dating site for people with STIs. And the intent behind that is like, if you're petrified of having to tell a new partner, then this is a great way to get your feet wet again and get back into the dating realm because at least they'll already know about your infection. I mean, sure, there should be still other sexual health conversations, but at least that part of the conversation is done. So that said, if you are having to tell someone or if you're whatever way you're going about it, when you first have to like how to tell a partner, that's one of the number one questions we get asked on the STD project is how am I going to have this conversation with someone? And I would say you asked about don'ts. I would strongly urge if you could help it, I didn't always do this though, because I was super emotional about it initially, but I would urge to not be uber emotional. I mean, to not ball like a baby and freak out. Right. And that's going to be hard if you're very shy, still very new and you're, and you're super emotional about it. But I feel like that kind of rubs off and it, and it portrays a doom and gloom. And oh my gosh, if I'm freaking out, then you probably should freak out too. You know, and it's more like a matter of fact, practical approach is what I like to encourage a Finding a time that is a safe space for that person, a time and place that's safe and quiet and is not a public place. So if they do have a reaction that's adverse, then they don't feel like they're on the spot and that they can't actually be genuine because they're in this public location. There shouldn't be a bunch of other people around and things like that and distractions so that they can think it through. And I would say and oftentimes for me, that's worked out in their home. Like I'd go and pop over to their house and say like, Hey, I want to quick talk to you about something. I'd show up, sit them down, let them know like, okay, so I want to talk to you about sexual health. And, you know, I need to let you know that I have genital herpes. I was diagnosed when I was 16 and I share a little bit of my story. You can share as little or as much as you want. I often, then I also follow that up with some additional, just some quick factual information about how common it is and what the real risk is if we were to choose to engage in partnered activities. And then I encourage them to do their own research too. Like there's a lot of resources online. This is a really good website to go to. And I might spout off, you know, a site that I like the best. And then I try and leave and like, okay, you know, and I, and I make it clear that I want them to know that this choice is up to them and how they feel about it. And I'm happy to answer any questions, but I would respect their decision in either direction. If they just felt like we couldn't move forward in the relationship at this point, that would be cool. I understand. Or if they needed some time, I wanted to give them some time to kind of think about it. So it's as short and sweet as possible, like a 10, 15 minute conversation, provide some information and then give them some space to think about it, to do some research. And then <laughs> um, and then sorry, I had someone come in and then go forward and then come back and follow through with any questions if they have any. So uh, yeah, simple, 
kind of to the point, open, understanding and empathetic for whatever decision they make and then and then see what happens. And then at the end of the day, no matter what, though, for the folks who are doing this, whether you tell them up front right from the start, whether you tell them after you've had a couple of dates and before you think you're going to um, start doing some sexual stuff with them, no matter how you're doing it, don't take it personal. Their choice is not personal. It's really a reflection of what they know and where they're at and what, what risk they're willing to accept. And somebody else will move forward. I'm a good example. I mean, I've literally never had anybody say, I don't want to be in a relationship with you as a result. And so many people who come to my site say the same thing. So there have been people who've told me stories how they were rejected as a result, and that may happen, but it's not personal. It's not a reflection of who you are, your value or anything like that. You can feel good about yourself. You can live with integrity. Otherwise, you're going to feel guilty about it. And so I, this goes for guys and uh, girls, it's exactly the same as your situation. I know guys who have SEDs, right? And they haven't come across situations where they're being rejected, I've, I think. Like, I think one of them one time was not really re- harshly rejected or anything, was just kind of turned down. Oh, sorry. But as you say, it depends on the people you're talking to and everyone's different and has their different risk assessment and so on. So it's nothing to be afraid of. I was thinking about your emotional point. It's a great structure you gave, by the way. The point about not being emotional about it, I think it's probably important for them to have spoken about it before, whether it's with friends, I know, ex-girlfriends, uh, or maybe like posting, you have an anonymous anonymous posting of STD experiences, basically getting it out there, not, not waiting until it matters to make this the first time you're going to like, say you meet the girl of your dreams and you got to tell her, you know, I've got an STD and it's this type and you, everything's on the line for you. You don't want that to happen. You want to be able to like, just feel comfortable with talking about it because you've done it many times before. So I think it's a really good idea just to get comfortable about talking and being more open about it. I was at a conference uh, a few months ago. It was nothing to do with dating or anything. And there was a young guy talking, talking for his dating problems and and the girl next to me, one of the girls I've been hanging out with, she just said, well, you know, I have herpes. Uh, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, I had it on my mouth. I gave it to, I gave a blowjob to my boyfriend. He got it. And then he gave it back to me. You know, it's no big deal. And she was just really open with it. I was, mm-hmm. but that's happened to me a few times in the last year. So I think, I think people are getting more mature and open about it. It's someone I'd only known for a few days at the conference. So it wasn't like, you know, we had a, a big trust relationship or anything. So I think people, are, there are people getting more mature about this. And then you see other communities like uh, the, the polyamory community. And I think also to an extent, the kink, they're a little bit more responsible about it. They're also obviously taking more risks. So they kind of have to be, but I think they tend to have more conversation about it. And then there's more communication about it also. Yeah. And I would even counter that. I actually feel like those communities um, that you mentioned are even, they're taking fewer risks in that they're communicating part of a healthy polyamorous and a part of a healthy like BDSM relationship requires extensive communication upfront and during and all throughout that relationship. So that said, that's inherent in being less risky is communicating what you are willing to accept, what you're expecting in terms of safer sex, what you would like out of a partner and how you feel about that. I mean, all of that to me I think is part of being sexually responsible. At the STD project, we like we like to talk about sexual responsibility instead of sexual health because I think a lot of times people assume that sexual health means without infection and you can be sexually healthy and responsible and have an STI 
those things aren't mutually exclusive. And to me, sexual responsibility is understanding what those risks are. And like you said, deciding what your risk assessment is and what you need to do in order to reduce whatever risk you're concerned about. And then going forward with that, like, and I love hearing that, that somebody was just chatting about it kind of like everyday conversation that it should be everyday conversation, or at least within our close circles, like not everybody talks about their sex lives with random strangers and that's fine. But at least within your friends or close family members, your sister or something, you know, whatever it is, like, I just think we should be having these conversations a little more often to make it feel less, like less of a freak out, less of a, this is the end of the world kind of thing, because it really isn't. Like I always say, we, nobody wants an infection, a cold, a flu of any kind of any, any sort of issue. Right. But our bodies, they're resilient, but they're not infallible. This is a product of of human life. This is a human experience. Infections are not necessarily that every human has to have an STI, but like there are risks in everything we do. When I go down the road and drive to work, I get in my car, I put my seatbelt on, I use my blinker. I look behind me before I change lanes. You know, I do things to help reduce risk. You don't look at your phone. I don't look at my phone too much (laughs) very often. Right. I don't Snapchat while I'm on my phone and driving at least. (laughs) So yeah, I do things intentionally to reduce the risk, but I don't stop getting in my car and going to work because I want that paycheck and I want to go to work. And so the, the reward is worth it. I just take, I take other considerations and I take other risk reduction approaches. And that's the same thing I think about the sexual responsibility is like you you do whatever you feel is necessary in order to reduce your risk and don't Mm -hmm. settle for anything less. And then at the end of the day, though, if you do contract something, it's not this who gave it to me and it's all your fault. Well, no, I mean, you understood your risk. You were being responsible. You were being thoughtful about it and you chose to engage in those activities too. So move forward and let's roll along together, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's Mm -hmm. my soapbox again. (laughs) That's great. Great. Thank you. Someone just opened my door as well. So that, that distracted me. So um, are there any common misunderstandings about STIs that we haven't discussed today or popularized myths, basically any of the big things you think we haven't covered? Well, I feel like we touched on so many. That's probably, uh, yeah, that it really is. The one I wanted to talk about was the testing that you don't get tested for everything. And so when we happened to end up naturally talking about that one, that was what I put on my list. So, so that would be my, my biggest thing is just to know and I would say, you know, if somebody says, oh, I've been tested for everything, I'm clean. If they use the word right. clean, there's no such thing like cleanliness and hygiene has has nothing to do with STI transmission anymore. And really it has very little to do with the overall infection in a, in a first world country anyways, nowadays. So that's fairly irrelevant and it speaks volumes to someone's lack of information about the subject. So that to me would be a yellow flag. Um, if somebody says I've been tested for everything then again, that's another yellow flag. So you can't be tested for everything. So that speaks and shows their their knowledge. And then I would follow that through. It doesn't mean like don't engage because the majority of people are going to say that quite honestly, because the majority of people have very little information about this. But I would say that that then tells you to have a, a, an additional conversation, to think a little bit through that and maybe decide to open up that conversation and, and build some intimacy there with that knowledge. So yeah, that would probably be my last my last edition. Thank you. So the one point I just thought of, I wanted to bring up, I've been doing protected oral and penetrative sex pretty much since I was uh, 17 or 18, a very long time, or a little bit later because I didn't understand the implications. So I think it was about 10 years or something I've been doing the oral. But what I noticed is for the oral in particular, I'd get some pushback from the girls. 
they'd be like, are you kidding? Like I've had all sorts of comments when, when I say, no, wait, I got to put my condom on first before oral sex, right? They're, they're like, their eyes go big and they, they feel like they're being accused of something. And, you know, cause there's probably no other guy that's asked them to do that. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to bring up the point that you kind of get this uh, negative social pressure mm-hmm. in some situations where some of the things we've spoken about today, where there's myths and it's not so common and stuff, you can pretty much expect that you're going to get some kind of remark or stuff because the other person's not used to it. So you might have to introduce it beforehand softly or just, you know, be ready to like receive some kind of comment like that and then explain it and then just get on with it. They're, they're fine afterwards, but it, it does, I think it's a little bit of a shock to some people. Mm-hmm. It definitely is. And I mean, if we're trying to change doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so in that sense, we have to understand that that's just not the norm, but the norm has resulted in, in, in such a plethora right. of STIs. So right. So it's maybe not, not the best. Really yeah. positive. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if we want to change that, and if we want to change the conversation, we're going to have to ruffle a little feathers and, and take people back. But eventually the more we do that, the more that the opposite will be true. So, I mean, that will happen. It just takes some of our bold people being willing to have those conversations at first and willing to, and, and, and having a thoughtful way of not of approaching if somebody takes offense to it, that it's certainly not offensive. It's not intended to be. We're just, we're just trying to be responsible. And, and the thing is, is it's not only like you're worried about your health, you're worried about their health too, because that barrier is for the two of you, right? So you could have an infection that they don't want in their mouth and vice versa. So it's not just, you're worried about contracting general herpes from their oral cold sores. I mean, it could go both ways. So I think sometimes that's what people don't realize is that it's mutual. It's a mutual health. Yeah, and that's definitely the the frame you have to bring it up under. You know, <laughs> you don't have to be like, "Hey, I'm protecting myself from you." That's not going to work. That's that's going to cause a problem, some kind of drama, totally. definitely, yeah. and it's going to stop any sex happening. I'm sure. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what are the best ways for people to connect with you uh, to learn more about you and your work? Online is always best. I'm on all the social medias. So yeah, definitely through the website. I have a contact form there, but I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Pinterest and Snapchat, all the things. Excellent. Yeah. So hit me up, reach out. Yeah. Always happy to chat and message with folks. All right. Great. So we'll put all the links as usual in the show notes for that. And it's probably STD project on searches as well, I guess. Yeah. The STD project. Yeah. Who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice or knowledge in this area? Anything to do with dating, sex, relationships? I think obviously your specialty is uh, STDs. If you know other people who've got great information in this area. In the U.S., the American Sexual Health Association is great. Um, The National Coalition for Sexual Health, the CDC for all of your clinical real factual information and statistics. Planned Parenthood is phenomenal. NHS is really good too. They do have a lot of helpful videos and just information and things about testing and stuff like that. So if we're talking about the UK, those would be the first that I can think of that come to mind. The Center for Sexual for Sexual Health and Pleasure, CSPH, I want to say, is there they're great for all sorts of other kinds of not just like sexual health and STIs and unplanned pregnancies, but just um, orientation and communicating with partners and, and all of that. Um, that. Those are the ones that come to mind anyways. Great. Thank you. And what be your top three recommendations to guys to improve their dating life as fast as possible? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. Communication. I would say don't be afraid to communicate and talk about 
the things because, you know, I know as well as, as they do that they have feelings, concerns, and there's a lot of this stigma about men not caring and not having emotional needs. And, and that's just so inaccurate and not true. And it's not my experience with any of the men I've ever been with. And so, and, and the more that I work with sexual health educators and things, the more I learned that it's just, it's just a, a feeling, a barrier of feeling that they can't communicate about their needs and desires. And so I think that that helps build trust and intimacy. So don't be afraid to communicate your wants and concerns and um, consent goes in both directions, right? So we talk a lot about sexual violence and things like that and in women, but it's important too for the man to communicate what they're what they would like and what they are interested in. And then in, at any point in time, you can revoke that consent. You can decide that it's not going to work for you and that's okay. So communication, I think would be number one. And, oh, three more, two more. I don't know. I think that's the one, two, and three. Can I make that one, two, and three? <laughs> yeah, sure. Different types of communication. Communication. That, that, yeah. that works. That just reemphasizes how important it is. Mm-hmm. Well, Janelle, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really comprehensive look at it. It's the first time we've really done it with the ST, STDs and STIs, uh, which is amazing. But I've been looking for someone to talk about it for quite a while, actually. And I've struggled a bit. So I'm glad to have found you. And uh, the information was great. So thanks very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime, any follow-up or anything, I'd be happy to participate. So yeah, thanks for having me. Great, thank you. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait, do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at datingskillsreview.com how we help men like you take control of their dating lives.